And you're absolutely right. Um, it's a much more compelling case to be able to go into an insurer and say, we can help you double the size of your business or more. Welcome to the Instec London podcast. Matthew Grant here. And this week we have my interview with Bob Reville, COO and founder of Predicat. Now, despite the explosion in insurance tech startups in the last few years, aside from cyber, there are still very few out there with credible offerings for tackling the intangible risks that today represent a far greater value of a company's assets than physical assets. I've known Rob since Predicat was founded in 2011 as a spin-out of the RAND organization. And since then, they've built out one of the most credible models for emerging risks and are working with some of the largest insurers. They've got offices in California and in London. And at the time of this recording, Predicat is in the third cohort of the Lloyd's Lab. And like everyone else I've spoken to, seems to be having a very successful time there. Bob's calling in by phone, so a bit of crackling in places, but some great insights into how to build a liability model. Bob, welcome to the Instead London podcast. You are often over in London, but we're actually talking whilst you're in California, although I've got to say it does sound like you're in the next door room. So it's the joys of uh, transatlantic communications. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for arranging this. Great. Well, we've known each other, I think, for about eight years, probably even before you started Predicat back in 2012. So you're, you're CEO. We're going to hear a little bit about what you're doing with liability modeling. And you're also now on the, the, the cohort at Lloyd's. But could you just give a little bit of background for people that don't know you and don't know Predicat about your own background and then you know, what you're doing at Predicat? I am an economist. And I used to work at the Rand Corporation, which is a nonprofit think tank in California. And Predicat emerged out of a R&D project that we did with RMS, which is how you and I met. And we were working on trying to figure out how to come up with ways to predict what might be the next asbestos. But to turn that into a system that would allow insurers to manage their aggregations around large-scale liability risk. So sort of a cap modeling-like approach. And so that's what Predicat is. We've developed liability risk modeling. We've gone from originally doing cap modeling to doing you know somewhat more broad modeling around the science of liability risk, uh, meaning what is... How is science informing future liability risk? And it's turned into products that we're selling not just to insurers, but also to global industrials. So specifically, what are you finding that your clients in the insurance industry have, have what problems they've got that you're finding they're asking you to help them solve? Well, initially, we thought that the problem was going to be only the issue of aggregation management. So in the uh, 2000s, Again, when we were working with RMS and uh, we were working on terrorism insurance issues, and that's when I became aware of the whole approach of catastrophe modeling and how it has helped insurers to avoid the insolvency that comes from huge correlation associated with natural catastrophes. And we were at the same time doing a lot of work on asbestos litigation in the United States and started thinking about how 
all of the insolvency issues that had emerged out of asbestos might be able to be solved through a similar kind of modeling as existed on property cat. So, so our idea was that the problem that we were going to be solving was aggregation management and all of the things that go along with that, maybe setting cat loads and things like that. But I think over time, we've come to realize that the way in which the industry has responded to the potential threat of another asbestos has has caused them to, I'd say, be a bit risk averse and to adopt an exclusionary mindset. So uh, a tendency to when risks, new risks emerge to try to avoid them rather than to try to cover them. And that's led to a large coverage gap so that, you know, Today, compared to the, let's say, the 1970s, um, in 1973, 94% of U.S. liability risk was covered by insurance, and by today, it's fallen to about 55%. And all that just results from higher uh, retentions, increased exclusions, lower limits relative to the growth in revenue, just in general, uh, contraction of the amount of coverage offered. And so increasingly, we're focused on that problem rather than just the aggregation management problem. So it's really part of this whole theme around providing new information and then giving underwriters confidence that that information is good enough to make decisions about. I think, I guess what's particularly interesting about what you're doing is it's actually opening up or, I guess, reopening you know, classes of business that they aren't writing or would have written before. But are you also finding, in terms of people's concerns about these areas, I mean, it's a long time since people were impacted significantly by the asbestos losses, but is there a situation where unless there's been a really large recent loss, people tend to get a little bit either complacent or they sort of forget these large losses happen. So you have to sort of re-educate them as well on the, the scale and types of losses that there can, that can be out there. Well, you know, that was definitely true in 2012 when we started. I'd say over the first few years after we started, we would talk about how we were trying to help the industry deal with a next asbestos-type litigation. And some people said to us, you know, that's really not a problem anymore. We don't see that kind of litigation anymore in the United States. We're really worried about things like Deepwater Horizon or a train wreck or something like that. And so... Others, of course, thought it was just a matter of time. And as it's turned out, I think that the people who thought it was just a matter of time were right, because today you're seeing emerging a whole new wave of bodily injury mass litigation. You're seeing it with Roundup, and you're seeing it with Johnson & Johnson and Talc, and you're seeing it with the opioids litigation, which I think is potentially on a scale of, uh, of an asbestos, really. And you're seeing it with PFAS litigation, repetitive head injuries. It's just, an, it's, it's almost the 70s and 80s all over again. I think you said PFAS in there. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, PFAS. That's perfluorinated and polyfluorinated chemicals. So this is things like Teflon, and so PFOA, PFOS, and all the substitutes that were developed for it over the years, and they're now calling them the forever chemicals, which you know tells you all you need to know about the risk. Right. Okay. They don't and, go away. Yeah, got it. Okay. Oh, good. Another, anacron- another insurance and acronym to add to the uh, to the list, the PFOS. And so I guess that's really interesting. So these are kind of emerging threats. How does that sort of work in terms of the point at which people shift from? you know, not taking it seriously to yet yeah, starting to 
take them seriously, but there still hasn't been a big loss yet. I mean, do you, do you see a kind of trigger point at which suddenly companies are worried, therefore there's insurance opportunities and therefore insurers start to see opportunity in there? Or is it more of a kind of slow change, incremental change? Well, the nature of liability risk is that it tends to be slow and incremental. Uh, when you, you cover something, the losses actually probably won't be paid for five years or so. And if you cover something that the way that it works in, in liability insurance, where you are covering it on an occurrence basis, meaning when the loss occurs rather than when the claim is made, it actually can be 20, 30 years before you pay on a policy year that you're writing right now. And so, yes, everything tends to move relatively slowly. But that said, when you're seeing a large amount of, of losses, I mean, so I mean, the, the Monsanto-Bayer glyphosate loss is probably going to be pretty significant. And there are a number of other companies that are also selling that product. And Telk is the same way. You've got the Johnson & Johnson loss, but Telk is a cosmetic ingredient that's used by a lot of other companies as well. So there's a lot of concern there. And then opioids, that one is definitely um, leading to a lot of concern for not just the pharmaceutical companies, which tend not to be covered, but for the distributors and retailers, McKesson and Amerisource Bergen and the uh, Rite Aid and CVS and the like. All of those are being sued right now and are accruing defense costs and where there's concern that there could be larger losses all around. So large-scale cloth, uh, I'm sorry, large-scale large clash is definitely emerging as a risk and liability for bodily injury type or public health type litigation. Are you focusing mostly on the sort of known knowns risks, so that, you know, that all the things you categorized as yeah, emerging risks, seeing some trends, mitigation, or are you also able to model in some way you know, the, the, the unknowns that are kind of lurking in the background and not, not yet kind of made the headlines, but you're either starting to see trends or they've got characteristics that could lend themselves to become larger losses? Well, definitely not the known knowns because that is not terribly useful to our clients who have already written the known knowns. What you want to try and do is to get the, well, we actually, you're making a reference back to the old Rumsfeld known knowns, known unknowns, unknown unknowns. And so, I think that people have always thought of liability as full of unknown unknowns, and our whole approach is to try to turn the unknown unknowns into known unknowns using what the scientific literature is saying about what businesses are doing and what products they're selling and try and catch the risk at the earliest possible stage when the scientific literature first starts to emerge and then to, uh, as those literatures evolve into what will eventually be a scientific evidence base, if it ends up in litigation, we are mining the literature progressively to try and understand all the exposure settings and to understand the populations that are exposed and turn that into essentially simulated mass litigation. And so for Roundup, for instance, and for Talc, we and all the PFAS chemicals, we were tracking them, you know, in 2013 when we created our first 
our first release of the software, and none of them were seeing real litigation at that time. And the whole point is to try to get it early. Interesting. And I, I read on the website, you're scanning 30 million scientific journals and profiling 35,000 companies. So you, you must have got some pretty powerful analytics to be able to extract that data. And I guess also ways of actually extracting unstructured data from the journals as well. Yeah. So we are searching through all the published peer-reviewed scientific literature, looking for where there might be a a chemical or a product or a business practice that scientists think might result in bodily injury, property damage, or environmental damage. So we we start with that. Um, we try and catch the journal articles at the earliest possible stage, and then we connect the articles into literatures and then track those literatures as they become essentially scientific evidence. And then at the same time, as we start to mine those literatures to describe the industrial footprint that is exposed to that risk, we turn that into company profiles for the companies that are in that exposure footprint. And so, and then both of those modeling efforts, the exposure modeling effort and the, well, as I should say, it's the scientific evidence modeling effort, and then the company exposure modeling effort. Um, We start by doing essentially by hand with experts curating data. And then over time, we turn all of that into training data, which feeds machine learning algorithms, which allows us to get up to the millions of journal articles and the tens of thousands of companies. So a lot of companies claim to have AI. Sounds like you, you actually you do have AI and you need it, and you, you're you're proving that you can use it. I, I just kind of interested, just thinking through practically how an underwriter would use your tool. So it, it, are they starting off with a company they're looking to insure, and then they enter that company into the into the model, and that then comes out with a set of risk scenarios and and. And pricing is it, I mean, is it analogous to how catastrophe models work or is it something different you have to do to get to the result no it's exactly that so you would have an underwriter receives a submission or a renewal and you would log in and find that company and and then you would see first of all out of the 250 agents that have literatures that are large enough that we're tracking them as potential large-scale tell risks for insurers, you'd find out, is this company exposed to none of those, to 50 of those? And then all of that is turned into information that we quantify in terms of uh, exceedance probability curves. And so you could get PMLs and TVAR. And we also turn it into time dimension risk. So it's not just, so the whole thing about liability is unlike in the property environment where you write something and then there's going to be a loss that year. For us, you find a company, they're exposed to, let's say, Roundup, and we'll tell you not just that there's some risk that there would be litigation for this policy year, but that there could be litigation in future policy years. Or if you write this year, there could be litigation that would be covered this year that might not emerge for a few years. Or for that matter, if you have an insurer that has You've been writing the same company for the last 20 years. 
that's one of those that's the real hard problem in liability insurance the stacking problem this is where where you actually can have 20 policy years that would all be activated because you had a company that was exposing the public to some chemical for 20 years and every policy year could potentially end up paying out so there's all this so to get to your point, though, um, you'd go in and you'd be able to see not just the losses that could happen this year, but the full-time dimension of the loss that could emerge. Yeah, and it's fascinating. So it's another, yeah, it's another, another dimension versus, uh, I guess, want a better word, the kind of cleaner cat loss you might be. I'm not quite sure what the reverse is of the gift that keeps on giving, but it certainly sounds like the, sort of the, the pain that keeps on hitting you if you're a liability underwriter. What about regulation? Because that's certainly in other areas, you know, regulation often drives adoption. Are there other similar regulations in the liability space or, or sort of rating requirements for companies? There is a growing amount of interest in the casualty aggregation risk. So, for instance, right now, the, the PRA has an initiative around this where they're trying to understand how much exposure there is to casualty aggregation and then to think about how to encourage companies to manage it better. Also, the rating agencies are getting pretty focused on this. AM Best is beginning to ask for scenarios. The Bermuda Monetary, oh, on the regulatory side, the Bermuda Monetary Authority has started asking for liability scenarios and S&Ps getting very interested in this. I think it's early days still about what concretely will will emerge as the regulatory framework, but there is a lot of interest in it. I think that after you had uh, Solvency 2, the first wave of regulation that came out of that was in property. And I mean, you know, historically, in fact, there probably has been more insolvencies associated with liability and reserve deficiency and liability than there has been associated with NATCAT. And a lot of that has to do with aggregation risk. And so there is definitely going to be some sort of a regulatory framework that comes out of it. But it's a harder problem in some ways because of this time dimension issue. And so uh, exactly how it's going to work isn't clear yet, but it's this competing approaches that are emerging. Yeah, and certainly a big, a big business driver in terms of yeah, adoption, I, I expect, as that becomes clearer and, and more requirement. And, and just talking about business adoption, I mean, you've got, you're sort of very well known, or you're certainly well known in this particular space, and there don't seem to be many other companies out there doing something similar. I mean, is there a, is there a big barrier to adoption? We talked about the you know, 30 million journals you go through and the 35,000 companies, so clearly there's something around the just the rigor and depth and processing power of the analytics, but you know, why is it so difficult to get these things to a credible point as a, as a model? I think that the idea of doing something that is exposure-based and forward-looking, which is what we try to do, forward-looking meaning you can't just model previous mass litigation events because that is not interesting because those products have been removed from the market and those companies are out of business. And instead, you've got to try and figure out some approach to do something forward-looking and then also turning that into company data uh, has been multiple years of investment by Predicat. It's it's uh, and and technological innovation. We've had, we've had to, as you noted, you know, develop an AI to get this to scale. So I think that is a bit of a barrier to 
to uh, competition. But that said, we do have competitors. They take different approaches. And the brokers also are involved in trying to model and look at the exposure in this space. So no one's doing it quite the way we're doing it, but there are others. Yeah. Well, it's that healthy. So it's good to know there's other competitors out there. Otherwise, you sometimes wonder why you do it. And Yeah, exactly. And can you talk about some of the, the, the clients you're working with? Yeah, well, we're working with seven of the 10 largest liability insurers, and we work with about 18 insurers and reinsurers, and we are now also working with some global industrials. So by the end of the year, actually, we'll be at about 10 global industrials. So these are large chemical companies that we're also working with, and that area is pretty fast growing. So... I actually expect next year we might end up maybe about mid-year having more global industrial clients than insurance and reinsurance clients, which will be interesting. Are they coming to this because they're looking to change or reduce their insurance purchase, or is there something, something different that's, that's driving their interest? Well, this AI, as you call it, that we develop, this ability to read through scientific journals, if you're a chemical company and you've got let's say dozens or even hundreds of products and you need to track the science that is looking at whether or not your products might be causing bodily injury or environmental damage. And it turns out to be a large scale issue that also has as regulatory concern completely outside of buying insurance. Now, we do take an insurance-focused approach to it, which makes us different than a typical product stewardship that's what they call it, product stewardship. A typical product stewardship vendor, we're much more quantitative in the approach that we take and less, more focused on science, less focused on, on regulation. And we do expect that that eventually will be something that will help facilitate better, more efficient insurance buying, but that's really not the pitch that we are using at the moment. It's more just about how do you stay on top of the risk and how do you make sure that you are doing the right thing by your customers and the general public and your workers. Yeah, it's a pretty powerful business model. I mean, there's very few companies I can think of, and it's certainly it's always been a challenge in the catastrophe modeling world to basically service the end client he so often wants to, if it's buying insurance, they kind of want to buy it through conventional means. So to be able to help them understand their risk, in your, I guess like in your case, understand and address the regulation issues, but also be working with the insurers. I mean, ultimately you get to a, a very strong virtuous cycle there where you know, the risk is assessed the same way, therefore the information is, is consistent and ultimately everybody wins because they're understanding the risk and, and reducing it and pricing it more effectively. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that the, I think part of the thing with liability is that liability is um, the losses are not just what you end up paying in defense costs and indemnity. If there is a mass litigation against the company, then there's reputation risk. There is products that get removed from the market. So there's loss of revenue. And no one would say right now that the only cost that Bayer is bearing for the Roundup litigation is the cost that they're paying in defense costs. It's much larger than that. Um, it's really existential. So the fact that so much of the loss is not just 
what's covered by liability insurance makes it something that these companies have entire functions built around trying to understand the risk. And then they are also buying insurance. I think that that insurance buying is, it's a, the liability insurance is a pretty blunt instrument at this point and really is not capturing the texture of the risk for particularly large companies. And there's a lot of scope for product innovation to be able to better help the large corporations to manage this product stewardship risk. A lot of costs don't have insurance associated with right now that are associated with trying to do the right thing in ways that will, if not done, later result in liability. So I think there's this huge scope for expanding the coverage available to deal with product stewardship. And that's that's really where I see Predicat making a big difference in the long run is helping to facilitate better coverage for the set of risks that are associated with with liability, but for which liability is only one small piece of it. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems to be a theme now. I've been hearing it in lots of different places where companies are looking at their total balance sheet risk and you know, combining what were conventionally thought of as being insurance, but recognizing a lot of losses turn up that that are actually outside of insurance or are uninsurable. But you know, ultimately, they need to they need to figure out what are the really uh, the, the big catastrophic events that could happen, and then have different types of protection in place that may be different than the than the previous type of indemnity protection that yeah, has been bought so far. So yeah, it's very interesting to hear that's coming through on your side as well. It'd be interesting to talk a little bit about how you sort of access your clients. You know, being based in Southern California, it takes you quite a long way from where the world of insurance is and, and even further from reinsurance. And you just recently joined the latest cohort in, in the Lloyd's lab. So I mean, how, do you, how do you sort of find that balance and what motivated you to join the lab? It's the weather, really, that keeps me in Los Angeles. <laughs> it's not the proximity to clients. We're very excited about being part of Cohort 3 because it allows us definitely to integrate more with the Lloyd's market and with London insurers in general. It's very much a face-to-face culture there still. And so building that office out and then getting involved in, in the Lloyd's lab, I think, is going to be the key to help having people get comfortable with our modeling. Yeah, face-to-face, but also yeah, people take a while to understand new risks. I mean, I, yeah, I think there's that tension in Lloyd's. It's very good at being a market for the risks that are really difficult to place elsewhere. But people, I mean, I think all underwriters are, rightly are a bit like this. You know, they're, they're a little bit skeptical about new ways of analyzing risk. And so yeah, convincing people that, the new technology is good enough to go and put some pretty significant lines down is always going to be the challenge. I mean, one of the interesting things, I don't know if you specifically come across this, but with the new product innovation facility they've launched in Lloyd's, which is intended to provide access to capital for initially anyway, some sort of test cases and it isn't necessarily intended to kind of bet the business on it, but it to experiment with some of these things. That seems to be pretty well fitted into what you're doing and some of the areas you're looking at where you can start to you write some lines, use some creative ways such as indices and you know, other sort of non-standard ways of, of pricing the risk or, or, or triggering a payment. But are you, are you doing much in, in that kind of area or anything else you're seeing out of Lloyd's that is, is sort of opening that, opening it up a bit more now than the challenges you've had trying to engage before? Yeah. 
one of the projects that we're working on in the Lloyd's lab is the development of a new named peril liability insurance product. So the project is that we are working with our mentors uh, and also working with others in the market to try and scope what would be a new product that could be offered out of the Lloyd's market that covers tail risk in liability for a large-scale mass litigation on a named peril basis. And that would involve getting people comfortable with the, uh, with the model and also understanding the size of the market, the companies that are exposed, why they're not adequately insured today, putting all of that into a business plan, designing the actual product instrument, all of this, and, and then helping to have that also feed into a, a workflow in our software. All of that together is this business plan that we're developing and that's one of our key initiatives. And I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be great. This idea, there's a lot of interest in the idea that liability, which is today almost entirely on an all perils basis, but what that all perils basis does is it ends up leading to a lack of coverage for things that are excluded from the, it's all perils with exclusions. So there's lack of coverage for the excluded risks. And then there also is unwillingness to offer as much limit because they don't understand exactly everything they're covering. I mean, the constant refrain you get from underwriters is, you know, I wrote this company thinking this was the risk. And then lo and behold, you know, out of nowhere, this is the loss that emerges. So the more we can anticipate where there might be future mass litigation using science and then cover the largest potential losses on a named peril basis. The feedback we're getting from the market is that's well suited for Lloyd's and it's about getting everybody comfortable with the, uh, with the concept. And then we're hoping that that, that leads to the, the launch of an entire new approach. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So like a named, a named peril might, for example, be opioids as one of the named perils you might, someone might buy cover for. Right. Or ideally, if you had seen opioids before the fire started, before the house started burning, that would have been that. And, and a set of other named perils, you know, as an entire portfolio. I mean, our idea is you don't want to just be writing named peril for roundup or for opioids, mm. but you want to be able to think where might there be 25 other public health issues that look like opioids, out of which maybe three of them will result in litigation in the future, or where might there be 50 other pesticides and herbicides or other agricultural chemicals, and any one of them could be the next roundup, but most likely most of them won't, but they all have science associated with them. And they're all quantifiable and they all can result in losses for certain companies that are above the level of their insurance today or are directly excluded. Um, and so being able to understand all that and then cover it on a name peril basis will get people comfortable with offering more limit above what's currently on an all perils basis or offering coverage for things like electromagnetic field today, which, you know, science isn't really all that supportive of the idea that there's going to be a lot of litigation in the future over cell phones causing brain tumors, but it largely isn't covered today. 
despite the fact that the science has moved away from it. So being able to encourage that kind of innovation is what we're spending most of our time doing these days. As you're talking, I'm sort of thinking you must be a bit like a, a doctor in A&E. I mean, you're seeing all these horrible things that can happen, but that's kind of part of the day job and you just have to keep going and hope that you can play a role or Predicat can play a role in, uh, in highlighting the risks and therefore encourage risk mitigation for those risks, yeah, despite the fact that ultimately they can you know, fairly unpleasant outcomes and, and lots, of, uh, lots of costs associated with them. Well, you know, a lot of the stuff we do, though, is debunking at the same time. So things like Diet Coke, you know, a lot of people think, oh, Diet Coke is a uh, going to, you know, kill me. Um, and at the same time, you know, when we look at the science around the artificial sweeteners and Diet Coke, you know, it looks pretty benign to us. And so we don't we don't worry about it. And, I, you know, over time, while initially you – when you're first exposed to the stuff that we do, everybody here has this initial reaction of, oh my God, there's so much horrible things in food and the environment. And, you know, particularly if you have young kids, you know, that a lot of us here have young kids. And so you, a lot of science these days is around how environmental chemicals and other types of products are causing developmental issues. Um, and so you get really nervous. But then over time, you kind of realize that, you know, first of all, that it's really just got to think about the world like an underwriter should think about the world, that, you know, you can take on almost all these risks. You just have to not have too much of it. So you avoid your aggregations. And then also you get to think, you know, find that the science around things like coffee, which is what fuels all of us here, is uh, increasingly positive. You know, it actually has health benefits. And uh, when they used to think it caused cancer, all the science no longer supports that. You've been around, you've been around for a while now. What's your sort of perception of what's happening in this whole insurtech area? In the insurtech world, there's just as much of a pressure almost for us as an insurtech company to be an insurer as there is for the insurers to become tech companies. It's this convergence between tech and insurance that pushes us in both directions. And it's pretty interesting. I don't know where it's all going to, you know, shake out for us, but it, it's definitely interesting. It's really interesting which com- companies are doing things like you, where you're actually offering new solutions to new risks or, you know, per your earlier point about how to sh- you know, there's been a shift in what people are covering for liability. You know, old risks that people are no longer comfortable covering. It. You, you've got a much more compelling story if you can go into an insurer and say, I've got some tools that can help you underwrite more business and grow your revenue rather than, I want to tell you, you know, all the risks that are associated with what you're already writing and you've got to spend more money to, un- to understand what you are doing better and you know, all the costs and difficulties related to that. So yeah, I think those are definitely the companies that are going to be amongst the more successful going forward if they can collaborate with the market. And particularly everyone's talking about the intangible risks and you're a big part of being able to, to sort of figure out how to analyze those intangible risks. Just to follow up on that, I mean, I... Uh when I described the fact that we've become more focused on addressing this coverage gap rather than on just helping manage aggregation risk, that coverage gap is about $75 billion annually that's uncovered by uh, in liability insurance in the United States. And that's a, you just try to get back to where the insurance industry was in the 1970s, but to do it right, to do it in a way where aggregations are managed, a $75 billion growth opportunity is pretty huge. 
Um, and that's to say nothing about the other risks that are not even covered by liability at all. Um, the other sort of product stewardship risks I was describing earlier. And so, and you're absolutely right. It's a much more compelling case to be able to go into an insurer and say, we can help you double the size of your business or more. And at the same time, help you to do it in a way that's sustainably profitable, unlike the way liability insurance operates today. That's why we've become more focused on the coverage gap than just on the aggregation management, because it's, you know, it's definitely a much more compelling pitch. Well, Bob, it's been great to carve out some time and hopefully we'll see each other face to face here over in the UK at some point and be good to check in uh, at some point in the future, see how, see how things are going once you come out of the lab and you know, see how that's worked for you. Sounds great. Definitely. I'll, uh, I'll let you know next time I'm going to be there. You can find more episodes featuring others in the Lloyd's Labs in earlier recordings and more to come. Now, the Instead London podcast continue to be supported by Insurance Insider, and we're delighted to offer you a free issue. Uh, the details are in the episode notes. If you want to find out more about everything we're up to at Instec London, then the best thing is take a look at us on www.instec.london. Uh, and feel free to contact me via LinkedIn or on Matthew at instec.london to tell us what's on your mind. <laughs>